Welcome to episode 174 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real, who matters, and how we can make a better world. The Sentientism worldview answers those deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Ian Offer. Ian is a senior lecturer in law at Birmingham City University, conducting interdisciplinary theoretical research focusing on global animal law, environmental justice, intersectionality, post-humanism and law in the Anthropocene. Ian is passionate about delivering legal education and research that will lead to the improvement of protections for animals and the environment in law. Ian teaches international environmental law and human rights, legal theory, legal research and constitutional law. His new book, Global Animal Law from the Margins, is published by Rowledge. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 173 others in our timeless back catalogue. Why not let me know via review or rating? Reviews, ratings, and sharing really help more people find out about the sentientism worldview, hopefully nudging the world towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism, that's sentient with ism on the end, on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. I couldn't bring my Harry Potter books into the house because magic was seen as like sinful and against God's will. These boys just very naturally ran up to this corpse of the bird and started kicking it and messing around with it. And that was just their instinct. That's what they wanted to do. I think the confusing thing at that age was not understanding why would this happen when it seems so intuitively wrong to me? And then also, why am I so affected by this, but no one else is? You can't walk into a fishing village in Kerala and just say everyone should go vegan because the fish are sentient, right? But at the same time, while recognizing that diversity of contexts and histories and perspectives, I think it's still important to recognize where there are harms being done in those other aspects. My position on this has kind of changed over time because I, I feel that it's really important to get it right, to not lock in any kind of normative system that will be either fragile or that will impose more harm over time. Law is a reflection of the people that it serves, the people that make it. So as our societies develop towards more compassionate approaches towards animals, we will eventually see the law move in that direction. It's just slow and it lags behind. Good morning, Ian. How are you? I'm good, Jamie. How are you doing? Yeah, great, great. Well, it's brilliant to get the chance to talk to you. I, we were put in touch by our previous guest, Josh Gellers, who I talked to way back on uh, episode 20, I think it was now. So it was great to have the chance to talk to him and he recommended we talk. And we've had a few online conversations via text, but this is the first chance we've had to have a proper conversation. And it's good timing too, because it syncs up with the release of your new book too. So it'd be great to sort of dig into the themes of that, and understand how it plays into the big ethical questions we ask. Um, and I think it's going to be highly relevant because this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the deepest philosophical questions, the questions of what's real and how should we understand the universe, uh, but just as importantly, the big questions of ethics, you know, what matters, who matters, and in that context, how can we try and make things better? And I have an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularize and develop this really pluralistic worldview that I summarize as evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings that suggests we take a naturalistic approach to epistemology, broadly defined with a healthy dose of humility, hopefully. Um, and when it comes to our ethical scope, that every sentient being 
matters and warrants compassion qualifies as another. But I'm talking to people who you know, both agree and disagree with that worldview and that way of framing things. So it'd be fascinating to understand your own philosophical journey and how your work fits into your thinking today. But I should stop blathering on and give you a chance to introduce yourself and maybe say a few words about the new book too. Yeah, of course. Well, I'm super happy to have a chance to chat with you, Jamie. I think your work is really interesting. So looking forward to, to getting stuck in with you. Yeah, an introduction. So my name is Dr. Ian Offer. I'm a academic and socio-legal scholar, I guess. Um, I largely focus on animals and the law, nature and the law, how all of that interacts with society at large. So I see the contribution that I make to the animal protection community as kind of twofold, uh, one being about education. So trying to increase the learning opportunities that are available for students at whatever institution I happen to be at, um, whether that's through research and PhDs or master's projects, um, as well as taught undergraduate and postgraduate programs as well. So I try and increase animal law learning opportunities wherever I go and work with students to kind of build their understanding and tap into a lot of that appetite for learning about animals, the environment and the law that's already there. And in many places, just um, it, there's there's not space for, for that to be borne out in, uh, in education. So working on building that and alongside that, doing uh, my research into the law, how, how law can be used as a tool to try and improve animals' lives. And um, that really is the, the core of what I'm trying to do. And I say animals because that's where my uh, sort of independent research journey started out. But I'm very interested in questions of nature and the environment and people and culture and society more broadly as well. So I, I think we'll have some interesting chats, you know, using the law to try and make the world a better place in some regard. Yeah, sounds easy. <laughs> so easy, so easy. Yeah. And, and do you want to mention the, the new book, um, Global Animal Law from the Margins and how that sort of fits in? I can, yeah. So so I, I've just published my first book. Um, so it's available through Routledge. They have a law and ecology series with lots of, lots of super cool authors in there writing about cool stuff about law, ecology, nature, animals, and so on. Um, so my book has come out of my PhD studies um, based on global law and animals. It's a little bit different to international law. It's um, more multi-scale, I guess. So I, I look at domestic issues, uh, regional systems like the EU, the African Union and others. I look at international law and I kind of look at how all of them work together, how they speak to one another and how we can use those interrelationships between different ways of making law to try and make a slightly better world for animals. And the book focuses on international trade as kind of a case study. But basically what I'm doing, the, the book is called Global Animal Law from the Margins. I'm basically taking sort of a, a deep dive into the, the history and the evolution of animal ethics over the years and looking at how marginal societal voices have been sort of sidelined in the mainstream animal law conversations. So in particular, I, I'm interested in feminist and queer and post-colonial perspectives as an example on the animal question. You know, what do they have to contribute to improving the relationship between um, animals and the law or how the law treats animals. Um, so that's largely what I'm doing. It ends up being a bit wacky where I'm looking at this, the kind of nitty gritty operation of the international trading system towards the end of the book 
but taking this kind of forward-looking ethical approach and trying to say, how could we improve that system through this approach? So the two are the most natural bedfellows, but I <laughs> I think in the end it works. <laughs> yeah, a fascinating combo. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll, I'm sure we'll come back to some of those themes as we work through the conversation too. So, so let's start with the first of these big philosophical questions. The question I sort of summarize amateurishly is what's real or the questions of epistemology. And for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in quite a sort of naturalistic, scientifically minded, maybe atheistic or agnostic household, or one that was maybe more spiritual or mystical or religious in its context, and how that side of their thinking, I guess the big question of naturalism and supernaturalism has shifted over their life, if it has, and how you think about those things now. Super easy question to answer. What is real? <laughs> I really like yeah. Light touch place to start. Um. <laughs> I'm expecting you to have a mathematically provable, sound, uh, incontrovertible answer, of course. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> no, but it's, yeah, it's such an interesting question for doing this kind of work. I, let me tell you a bit about what my, my history in this regard, I guess, and we can see where that goes. Um, I, I, I grew up in an atheist household within the context of... Uh, a very religious community and a very religious um, sort of wider family. Um, so my my grandparents were born again Christians. So any time that we spent with them, there would be a healthy dose of trying to convert us to <laughs> born again Christianity. <laughs> yeah. um, my, my parents weren't too thrilled about that, um, but you know we were well prepared, and um, so so that was uh, that was part of my my upbringing, I guess. And what was, um, as, a, as a child, what was your sort of experience of that? Did it feel like there were sort of two battling camps and your grandparents were trying to get you away from your parents so they could have a private chat and your parents were defending you with arguments before you went to visit? Or how, how did that feel to you? And did it feel sort of relevant and important or just something weird that your family were going through? <laughs> I'm trying to think of how it came across. You know, the ways in which it impacted me most would be the way we would prepare for trips to my grandparents. So my parents would try and make things easy for them. So obviously at that time, I um, I was reading the Harry Potter series. I couldn't bring my Harry Potter books into the house because magic was seen as like sinful and again, God's will. So, <laughs> so I think that was the biggest impact, really. I was just upset that I couldn't get through the newest book. <laughs> yeah, I guess it sounds like you didn't necessarily understand why they had an objection to it it was more just you know I want to I want to read my books why can't I yeah I, I think it didn't make a lot of sense to me in in that way and my parents did their best to kind of understand it and why we were trying to cater to that and make them comfortable and so on but I think ultimately that came down to family keeping the peace making everyone happy this is who they are what they believe and you know we're in their house so in, in a way we should respect that as much as we can um, yeah I think that the difficulty came with um the experience of having my brothers and I sitting at the breakfast table where they would put on sort of the the Christian cartoons on the TV to try and like help us along their path, which, you know, growing up in an atheist household, um, ha having other external influences too. I, I grew up um, largely in the highlands of Scotland, so quite a, a religious community and there was particular exposure to that through through school and, um, you know, the, the sorts of things you, you would be expected to be involved in there. But it was it was strange. And I think naturally we resisted it because it was different to what we were used to at home. And it, it, there was a feeling of it being sort of forced on us um, in a sense. Yeah. So you had that sort of automatic 
pushback reaction because it's being forced on you. Yeah. How did that sort of shift? Did you come to sort of engage more directly and neutrally in the questions of religion and the supernatural later on? Or how yeah. did, how's that played out since? Yeah, for sure. It's it's a complex journey for everyone. Um, but I, I think growing to understand the context in which I grew up um, now that I'm more removed from it has been really helpful. So I can see as quite problematic the ways in which um, children at school were expected to engage in Christian custom when that was not necessarily the religion that the students followed um, or the students may not have followed any religion. Um, so I, I think I've benefited a lot from moving out of that very isolated culture, I guess, where it's it's an expected sort of given that people would be following Christianity or would at least feel compelled to engage in morning prayer or, or as you know, um, we would go to the church for various events um, quite regularly when I was at high school. I think moving out to that, I, I spent I spent a, a really interesting exchange year at the National University of Singapore. And um, that's a really interesting context where I learned a lot about state and religion and the interaction between the two and um, creating a separation between the two. And, and also how that incredibly um, multicultural community sort of exists peacefully and how they manage that. So I think I've, I've learned a lot and being able to look back, I'm able to have a lot more understanding and compassion for where my grandparents were coming from, I suppose. I have learned, uh, you know, since being a child that they turn to Christianity as as a tool to kind of work through my my grandmother's diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. It was something that they hung on to. They needed their faith. And I think that's really what um, what kept her going for for as long and for as strong as she did. So I'm, I'm happy that she had that. Yeah. Um, of, of course, the, the other kind of the, the other kind of tension there has been coming to terms. So I identify as part of the queer community. So growing up in that very small, rural and Christian environment growing up, also growing up closeted, trying to sort of come to terms with the interaction of those things um, has been has been interesting. But I, I think I'm, uh, yeah, in a more nuanced place with it now. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, and it's an interesting intersection even there between the questions of epistemology and ethics, because when you th talk about, you know, the school's sort of pressuring and assumptions um, and even your grandparents trying to sort of steer you down a certain path, uh, that can feel ethically problematic. But if, based on their epistemology, on the things they actually believed, influencing you that direction was actually an ethical imperative, right? It was absolutely the right thing to do. So it's just, there's so many fascinating examples of where, you know, someone's epistemology directly influences their ethics. You know, these things are very rarely clean and distinct areas. And did you have a sense from your parents as to why they were atheists, I presume they didn't weren't brought up atheist, because with many of my guests, most of them have, not all, but most of them have moved away from an established religion and are now you know, agnostic or atheist. Some have taken a sort of spiritual but not religious route. But for most, there seem to be two major reasons why they moved away from an established religion. One was the sort of classic facts and evidence thing, right? This just doesn't seem true as they've learned more about the world. But the other was also spotting some of the ethical issues within the religious systems of thought, whether that is problems with, you know, homophobia, queerphobia, racism, sexism, casteism, telling young children they'll burn in hell if they break the rules. You know, the list, the list grows and grows alongside 
the genuine compassion and love that you find in religious worldviews as well. So did you get a sense from your parents there was more of an ethical thing or more of a facts and evidence thing or maybe more of a social thing? But... I think a healthy mixture of all of the above, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think for my mom in particular, growing up and seeing my grandparents transition from being atheist to born-again Christian, right around the time where that would have been really challenging for her, sort of, I believe, around 11 or 12. She noticed this real shift in, in her home life, and I think that that made the topic a difficult one for her. And I, I think it really was that sense that I didn't have a choice in this. This is being forced on me, and I don't know if I agree with this. It doesn't make sense. Um, and I think a, a healthy dose of skepticism about the, uh, about the faith as well. Um, so I, I think that was it for for my mom. For for my dad, maybe more of a nuanced picture. I, I don't think, but his parents certainly weren't as religious in their upbringing. So I think that came together, and that just worked for them. They didn't need that that faith or that religious practice in their day to day life. And I think for us, the, the really great thing that they did for us that they've always done is give us the information and give us the freedom to make our own choice. And I think that was part of um, you know catering to my grandparents is you know. It, while my my mom maybe had a a, a negative experience of um, that shift to um, a born again Christian household, which she didn't have a part in deciding, and, and she found quite difficult, they very much left the decision open to us and provided us the information and said, "Well, this is what they practice. You know, <laughs> tap into it, see what they're doing, see if you're interested. If, if you want that, that's great. You know, we'll support you." And I, I think that was the the best thing to, you know, that's an incredible privilege to have that freedom to explore and see what feels right for you yeah absolutely and that's a, to me that's a a central aspect of respecting your own children is sure trusting them to find their own way as opposed to sort of just indoctrinating them into becoming angry atheists which is another route that some that some people take that's fascinating yeah. thank you and you, you said already that you, you have a more nuanced view on i guess the you know the pros and cons of religion and the roles it can play in people's lives but in terms of your own personal epistemology how's that developed do you are you still atheist now or have you followed a different path or yeah i i certainly don't i i don't practice or or follow a religion it wasn't part of my upbringing and it's never felt like a gap in my life i suppose i've always um had so i i was interested in conversations i've seen you had pre have previously about the link between ethics and religion you know how and can ethics exist outside of religion? And, you know, I, th I think the easy answer is, well, of course they can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I've always had um, sort of almost innately just very deep ethical instincts that I've then explored. And one of those was my my relationship with animals and the environment more broadly. Um, so I've, I've never felt a huge gap there, but I, I think I have, I guess, as many of us do in the West and kind of the structure of our modern lives, some people can feel some sort of spiritual gap, a sense of meaning and purpose in what we're doing and longing for for something something more, to give some kind of meaning to what it is we're doing in our life. So I, I guess in, in that sense, uh, I, I think I have this in common with maybe a number of members of the kind of animal protection community, but that sort of soft spirituality, I do have quite a lot of time for. I, I think it's helpful even just in a self re self reflective sense um but mostly i think i just try and hold space for people to be who they want to be and believe what they want to believe um and the, it's very complex you know I, I teach uh i teach on law and society and the interaction between 
human rights and religion and different marginal communities and this all obviously can come together in some very complex ways um but i i think if we keep the the core as you know equality diversity and protecting one another from harm and um that's yeah that's kind of central to my my teaching as well as a lot of the research i do as well i guess yeah, thank you. That's fascinating. And I agree on that sort of soft version of spirituality, because some of these things, I think, just become you know, terminological differences, really, rather than sort of hardcore statements of belief. So um, I think many people, when they talk about spirituality, you know, I would, even there's quite a hard-edged naturalist, you know, I, I would share that sense, because what I think many people are talking about is a sense of connection with the other and a sense of, you know, interconnectedness with all of nature and a sense that, and and those things I think are well founded just through you know physics and biology and science and the reality of what we are as sort of evolved apes wandering this this planet. So I think you can describe that in quite a similar way without necessarily having to believe in souls or spirits or deities or magic or you know sure. things that go go beyond the the supernatural. Um, and before we move off this question of epistemology because i think it sort of sounds like we share this sort of broadly naturalistic approach that you want to engage honestly with reality to try and understand it with some humility and to try and use reasoning although we know our reasoning is always flawed to try and work out what might or might not be true and be willing to change i guess as well is you know that's one of the essential things about a naturalistic epistemology is it's by definition not dogmatic right if the evidence changes or your reasoning changes then so do your credences too. So we probably have that in common. And in this section, we quite often talk about religion and the sort of big natural, supernatural question because it's the most socially resonant. But there are so many different areas of epistemology as well, and many of them have brutal bearing on the problems of today. Um, and yeah. you can think about you know climate change denialism. You can talk about anti-vaccine. You can talk about unfounded conspiracism you know, misinformation, disinformation, bullshit, you know, all of those things, I think, are, you know, core epistemological problems as well. It's not just about do we believe in a God or not. And I'd, I'd be fascinated to know your views on that sort of space too. But I guess the question I was going to ask you, particularly because the scope of your work is so global and because you absolutely want to respect diversity of different views, how do you think about alternative approaches to epistemology uh, in different cultures and um, around the world? And how do we get the balance right between, you know, respecting and leaving space for those things, but at the same time being able to recognise when there might be harms or difficulties that flow from those? Yeah. And again, I, I don't expect a perfect answer to that question, but <laughs> I'd love to know how you think about it. I mean, it's a question I'm super interested in. Uh, and I think, yeah, w one of the one of the core things that drew me to global law and critiques of it as sort of a, a conceptual framework to work with is that it incorporates broad diversity from local to global levels. It sort of resists this idea that to move forward as a society and to improve our treatment of certain issues, whether it be animal welfare or responses to climate change and everything else, it resists this pool that we have to homogenizing, this kind of instinctive draw that I see every year with my students who are really passionate and engaged in particularly environmental issues, well, we have to just come up with a rule and make everyone follow it. And it's as simple as that. Go to international law because that's where we can have the most impact and come up with one treaty, come up with one framework and we're done. Perfect. I was really drawn to kind of critiques of 
of meta theories and concepts of global law because they say, well, it's just not that simple. <laughs> and I think we can't, I really buy into sort of postmodern perspectives that say we can't necessarily commit to or believe that there is one truth because our truth is socially generated. Um, we, we, we create our truth in our societies. And of course, there are measures and there are evidence and there are ways that we can prove certain things, you know, or certain natural laws that may seem incontrovertible, if that's even a word. Um, but these things change over time. You know, what we what we believe to be absolute hard science, the most factual of facts today, we maybe didn't believe a thousand years ago. We may not believe in a hundred years in the future. And I find that super interesting, I think particularly when working on marginal perspectives to issues like animal welfare or, you know, the sentience question, what do these issues look like from the perspective of different communities, particularly ones who see themselves as not aligning with the mainstream, as being, having been pushed out of the mainstream? I think there are really valuable lessons to be learned there. Um, so, I, yeah, there, there's lots more to be said here, but I, I guess the core of what I'm trying to say is I don't necessarily believe that we can come up with one right answer for all of these questions that will be correct for all places and all times. And we just see evidence of that all the time. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, one and, and one critique of that approach and of the postmodernist approach generally, I think, paints a caricature, which is to say, in responding to what you've just said, so you're denying there is any shared reality whatsoever. There's no such thing as truth. And anyone can just make up what they like. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Now, that, clear, that clearly isn't your position, right? But how, how do you respond to those types of challenges where people are saying, look, basically, are you suggesting a sort of epistemological relativism where people can just make stuff up and act on the world on that basis? And we cannot challenge them or even engage with them. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I do, I do enjoy those caricatures of postmodernism where it's like nothing is real. We yeah. can't yeah. anything because we can just counteract everything. Um, yeah, I guess I guess for me, I, I find I find it to be really helpful as a painting a picture of the world that we actually live in. So the science that we do isn't actually neutral in the way that we think it is because it is it, it is affected by the individual biases of the scientists doing the work and you know I, I work on this in the sense of legal theory so law is not neutral in the sense in the way we would like to think that it is neutral it is made by individuals who have political leanings who have personal beliefs who have biases and we see this play out over and over again in, in case law and in the way law is made and how it evolves um, over the course of history that's just a material fact so we can we can pretty easily observe so I, I find I find kind of the lessons from postmodernism really helpful as a way to critique the way we see thing, the way we see how we are doing things at the moment. It's not very helpful, I think, to describe our scientific methods or our legal methods as neutral and rational and objective because they're not. I think that's not to say we can't aim towards more rationality as well as I, I believe that emotion is also a, a useful and valuable form of knowledge. Um, and I don't think rationality and emotion have to be polarized in the way they, they often are. So that's not to say that using reason is not valuable. I, I think it is. Um, but I think it combines with other things. And I don't think using reason will always get us all to the same 
conclusion. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I like that balance because it's, and, and that's one of the reasons I focus this sentientism idea more on epistemology than on ontology, because it's more about the method, right? It's about let's use evidence, let's use reasoning, let's be skeptical of all of the evidence, let's be skeptical of our ability to reason. It doesn't guarantee we'll get to the right answer. And descriptively, what you're saying is absolutely true that, you know, even the best scientists and, you know, lawyers, even the people who are genuinely striving for truth have their own perspective and their own power and their own context. And of course, right, we're just, we're, we're humans struggling to work these things out. But I think I, I'd share that, that sense you have, that that doesn't mean we abandon hope for understanding reality or collaborating together with roughly shared understandings of those things. I think it's highly likely we do all share one reality that we're all part of. Um, yeah. And I think it's naive to think we'd ever have a perfect understanding of exactly what is true and what is not, but we can at least get enough of a confidence and hopefully enough understanding of each other's perspectives to be able to collaborate and to share and to work on things. But that doesn't mean that that struggle will ever be finished, but it also doesn't mean it's pointless and we should just give up and believe arbitrary dogmas either. So, Right. Yeah, that, that's the question, I guess, right, is really how do we work together? How do we wrestle through these issues that we are facing? You know, are do we do that by striving for the one right answer? Do we embrace confusion and nihilism and, you know, um, I don't know, how some, somewhere in the middle, I think, is, yeah. is what we do a bit of both. That makes sense, yeah. And one of the challenges that I sometimes hear to, to the idea of this sentientism worldview is that it's trying to do what you criticise, that it's trying to sort of pull us into one place and and also that it is um, a somewhat, you know, a Western mode, Eurocentric mode of thinking. And I, I push back on that pretty hard, partly because I think if sentientism is about using evidence, reason and compassion for all sentient beings, then dominant Western culture is overwhelmingly anthropocentric and arguably very strongly based on a sort of Christian epistemology and ethics so i don't think the west whatever it is is in line with sentientism at all and i think it, it also includes an implication that you know non-western cultures and i'm not even really comfortable using that term because the diversity is breathtaking why we can't bundle them together don't use evidence and reason right so there's an implication there that you know, Western thought is explicitly rational and perfect and the scientists have all the answers and all of the non-Western perspectives and epistemologies have no evidence in them, no reasoning in them. They're completely disconnected from reality and they're fabrications. And it's like, it's, it's interesting how that criticism sort of flips things around and shows that sometimes people who are criticizing even sort of worldviews they think might be Eurocentric or Western-centric still have those assumptions in their head that actually themselves are quite Eurocentric or Western and, and can deprecate other epistemologies um, in totally inappropriate ways. You know, I'd argue there's there's more cross-species compassion and arguably, you know, plenty of evidence and reasoning going on in non-Western ontologies and epistemologies. No, I, and I, I guess that aligns with a lot of dialogue around veganism as an ethical practice, right? Um, there is this, this kind of uh, myth that veganism is a, a Western development, that it is expensive and not realistic in non-Western or Global North contexts. But frequently what various communities of vegan activists and scholars are telling us is, no, we have been here across the globe in various places at various times. Um, and uh, yeah, you, you 
it's a much more nuanced picture than that. Yeah, I see what you're saying that um, the way that we do things in the global north or the west or whatever you want to call it doesn't always rely on evidence. I, I think we we sell ourselves as doing that and working in old and rationalist ways, but that's not always the reality. But I suppose it it does still strike me that that seems to be what we hold in the highest regard still um, in the global north or the west. Um, it's kind of post-enlightenment era. That is what we see as a thing to aspire to. If we can just achieve pure rationality and rely solely on evidence and nothing else, if we can do away with all the complications and the messiness of being human, we can do the right thing. I, I see that narrative a lot, and I, I don't think that's what you're saying, um, and I, I don't, I don't agree with that narrative. Because those that those complications and the messiness are part of the reality we need to understand, right? You can't just you can't just roll over that stuff or assume it away. That's not that's not even good science, let alone good naturalism. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think it's it's dangerous to pretend that we can do that. I think there has to be a recognition of our social, political, and cultural contexts. And again, I think writing from what I term to be a, a marginal perspective, I think seeing this from the perspective of, of queer theory or lived queer realities, we see this, you know, that that aspiration to a, whether it's rational or normal or mainstream way of doing things has unnecessarily marginal, marginalized um, groups of people um, and, and continues to. So for, for that reason, a lot of the critical theory that I really enjoy and, and engage with and use in my work tends to take that approach as well. Yeah, thank you. And I, uh, one of the things I guess I've I try to do with the sentientism worldview is keep it at such a basic level that it can still allow enormous pluralism on top of that. So instead of focusing on science, I focus on using evidence and reason. And that, I think, and I hope, gives space for evidence to include our own personal experiences. You know, those are types of evidence too. And reasoning isn't just put it in a spreadsheet and do the maths. It can include intuitive thinking and emotional thinking. And so I think as long as it's broad enough, but it still has this central naturalistic commitment to honestly understanding the world rather than fabricating things, I'm hoping that still allows enough space in the same way as we'll come on to next this sort of question of at least having compassion for all sentient beings still leaves a breathtaking amount of room for people to go beyond that um, but also to think about how we do interrelate with and interact with and have moral concern of various types for for the sentient beings so I've sort of tried to retreat it back to such a basic pluralistic level that hopefully that sort of universalism is, is sort of safe and okay and doesn't feel like it's coercive or pushing people into particular places but whether it works or not I don't know many people still still resist it so. <laughs> as is the way you know but I, yeah that that makes sense to me I think there's always a, a, the most kind of critical and nuanced theories there's always scope for some kind of agreement around some kind of common principle I think yeah um, you know, I, I think then the question becomes, well, how do we settle on those those core principles? Who decided them? Where did they come from? From what priorities? And then, yeah, how do we make decisions about how they're operationalized? Um, yeah. you know, and continue to challenge them too, right? It's not, it's not a right. job that's ever finished yet. Right. No, exactly. Yeah, super interesting. But let's move on to that second big question of um, ethics, you know, what matters, but also 
who matters. And that's often quite interesting to talk through from someone who doesn't have a religious worldview, because religious worldviews often come with, you know, there's a package of epistemology, an ontology stuff to believe, but there's also how to live your life too. And if we don't have that religious footing, you know, we come up with our own in some way, shape or form. So I'm really interested in how you've thought about good, bad, right and wrong, again, even from the sort of early days. And how do you think about the foundations of ethics today, if such a thing exists in a sort of more postmodernist frame? Yeah, I guess I see I, I see ethics as all about community and society. They are systems that we build up with the people around us in our context and, and in the little worlds in which we live. I, I think that's kind of undeniable um, in terms of how ethics develop. But I, I think, you know, there are some core ethical beliefs that do tend to span various places and times that people kind of oscillate around. Yeah, there are so many different influences in terms of what builds up our ethics if we don't have sort of a pre-organized system such as religion to guide us in that sense. But even then, there is so much scope for different kinds of practices, um, different personal engagement with religion, different community engagement, different family engagement. So um, really, the, the same consideration applies there. And I, I guess for me, I, I don't know. I think... Um, I think I've always I've always thought a lot about ethics, and I I don't know if that's something that is that I am naturally predisposed to, and then was kind of nurtured by by my family, but it's always been there. And in in thinking about the non-human, I, I have very early memories of recognizing that I I felt ethically different towards the non-human compared to the mainstream of what I was seeing around me. I suppose. So I, 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 I opened my book kind of with what I, what I consider to be my vegan origin story. So the first memory I have of seeing harm caused to an animal and realizing that I was experiencing that differently to the people around me. And the story goes that I was a, I was a boy scout at the time, I believe around eight or nine years old. And I have this vivid memory of um, the other boys that I was on, on this expedition with going for this hike in the woods they found a corpse of a bird. So it was already dead. I, I don't at this point remember what kind of bird it was, but I can still visualize the trail and exactly where we were. And these boys just very naturally ran up to this corpse of the bird and started kicking it and messing around with it. And that was just their instinct. That's what they wanted to do. And I have this traumatic memory of being so, so deeply upset by this and going home and telling my parents about it and crying my eyes out. And I, and I think the confusing thing at that age was not understanding why would this happen when it seems so intuitively wrong to me? And then also, why am I so affected by this, but no one else is? That's a very yeah. challenging thing to deal with at such a young age, which I, I think so many children are dealing with. Because um, I, I, I tend to be optimistic and hope that some kind of care and compassion for for the other, for, for non-human animals and, and those who are not like us is, I, I tend to think and hope that that is intuitive, that we, that that is natural to, um, to our nature as human beings, I guess. And we kind of unlearn that somewhere along the way. Um, but I, I don't know if that's really the case. So in answering, you know, good and bad, right and wrong are for you, it feels like there's something about just an in a deep emotional response to the other or situations. I mean, in this situation, I guess you're not 
even feeling empathy for the bird given the bird is dead but there's something there that's just emotionally tugging at you that intuitively you feel is wrong or disturbing or yeah for sure but i also recognize the danger of that you know people will will use a gut emotional response to something as a reason to justify hateful action um yeah. so I, I recognize that that needs to be put in conversations with all kinds of other things that i've spent a lifetime working this out you know i spent the better part of my phd just engaging with all of the different ethical perspectives there were and i thought okay now is the time to really sit down with these and think about where i align and how that will evolve over time yeah um, yeah and, pretty- and, and and that's that's part of the difficulty in I, because the way you opened your answer was you know absolutely descriptively true right ethics is just what groups of mostly humans you know agree amongst themselves is right and wrong that's just is how it is and and even individually it's descriptively true that we have certain responses to situations that might be emotional or intellectual that are based on our biology that based on the way we've been brought up they're based on our context they're based on our life experience right descriptively these are the things that we come to think of as good and bad but as you've hinted at there there's a danger that that description stops us being able to form views about the normative ethics of whether something's good or bad and right or wrong it puts us in a position of a of a completely neutral observer who's unable to assess or unable to judge the ethics of others so do you think it is possible for us to fairly and appropriately assess or even judge the ethics of another group or another individual and if so on what basis because I think it's the on what basis that then comes back to whether there is actually a normative core of ethics or whether it is just a a sort of relativistic descriptive see how it plays out and who has power (laughs) I should that's a terribly messy question but hopefully you understand where I'm going with it I just don't know to be honest I think I lean more towards thinking it it does seem rel it does seem relativistic um to, to me at least but uh, i don't know i don't know it, it's a really hard one it's one i've wrestled for for a long time so let me let me my, my response to it it does come back to um trying to take the perspective of another or um another way of saying that would be to treat as some form of moral grounding the interests or the preferences or the quality of experiences of others and obviously in this context i'm it's almost backwards right because i think of any other as any other entity or being that has its own perspective for whom things can go well or badly for whom they value themselves and their own experiences and in my mind that is essentially another definition of sentience is the capacity to have valenced experiences um so to my mind, any other that has their own perspective by definition is sentient and any sentient being therefore should be treated as another and we should respect their valuing of themselves. So for me, that forms a sort of an, some form of neutral grounding on which I can feel comfortable assessing the ethics of others because if a group of people has formed an ethical system that without a robust justification needlessly harms or kills or exploits individuals whether they're inside that group or outside of that group i feel very comfortable saying that is an ethical wrong because 
sentient beings, valid others, moral patients are being harmed or exploited or killed without a justification. So I'm quite comfortable saying that's wrong, right? Regardless of the fact that that group might, you know, viscerally disagree with me and might have a very different context that they've developed their own ethics in. Whereas I, I think you would want to not make that judgment. What do you think of people who, yeah. what do you think of that view that I've laid out? I think where I land is that it, a thing can be described as wrong on the basis of various ethical systems, but not all ethical systems agree one, with one another, obviously. Yeah. And it, I find it very challenging to think of what a a super ethics, if you will, uh, would look like. How do we then judge the value of other ethical systems, which I think is is what you're talking about. You think yeah. you've struck on something so uh, fundamental almost that we actually can do that confidently. And it's and it's not just judging other ethical systems. It might be judging cultural practices or even legal systems or you know yeah. anything that has an ethical or moral out you know outcome that we might want to say something is better or worse than another, and, mm-hmm. and therefore. A direction we might want to go in yeah as opposed to just observe yeah and i i think i can i can see the sense in that i i definitely can i guess i always come back to which is a lot of what you've been talking about sort of methods and an ontology sort of how do you reach the answer and i, I guess your answer will be sort of evidence and rationality and compassion and that all makes sense um but for me as well it's you know who who is involved like what um kind of what worldviews and perspectives are being used to come to those conclusions um yeah i don't know these are tough and interesting questions but i i think um i definitely get the focus on on harm um and i, I get the focus on sentientism i I'm really interested in theory that sort of goes beyond that and says that the focus on harm has been quite restrictive to a number of ethical systems, um, often sort of reducing living beings to that experience. Um, so I'm interested in in theories of, for example, the the capabilities approach that Martha Nussbaum and others write about. So talking about what different beings are capable of doing and how can we create space for them to do those things that they are capable of doing. And that becomes really interesting um, because sentience, of course, is focused on that that lived experience, that awareness of of your body and what's happening to it, of pleasure and pain and so on. So I'm really interested in the way that that is that is evolving and conversations about that are being had. But of course, yeah, there's there's still undeniably a significance to the experience of pain or suffering and and avoiding that. Um, yeah, and I and I find those aspects fascinating as well. And I think my own thinking has shifted too because. I think you're right when you talk about the different ethical systems, they go in very different ways. You know, there's a feminist care ethic or there's relational ethics, there's deontology, there's utilitarianism, different flavors of consequentialism, virtue ethics, the list goes on. What I'd hope to do, and part of the reason I frame sentientism as ethically pluralistic, and it says, look, you can use any of those systems or a combination of them or something else, as long as every sentient being does get it included at least in your moral scope. And then the next question would would be, well, okay, what should the implication of that be? And one suggestion I sometimes think through as a sort of minimally demanding baseline for what it would mean to be morally considered or to have any moral status or to be the subject of compassion or compare, the absolute minimum for me would be, if someone was asking me, what's the minimum you'd expect if someone said they had compassion for you or uh, granted your moral consideration? 
would be, and I always, I, I have a mental tip that I really struggle to say this, non-maleficience, that at least you wouldn't want to, you, at least you wouldn't needlessly harm, kill or exploit that other being. You know, hopefully we go beyond, did you want to help and there'd be ethics of care you could layer on, you want to respect different capabilities. But at the absolute minimum, surely any ethical system that isn't completely nihilistic or isn't totally relativistic or uh, would would acknowledge that minimum basis, even if you're, you know, virtue ethics, care ethics, deontology, doesn't matter. All of those would at least agree that you wouldn't needlessly commission harm of a uh, of another sentient being. So again, I'm sort of trying to retreat back to some sort of minimal shared baseline we might be able to agree on that can then be, despite our nervousness about, you know, our relevant positionality and different contexts, could still be a baseline on which we might be able to fairly assess the ethics of others based on harm caused. But I, but I, but I really like what you were then saying, and my own thinking of, about this has shifted over time too, because I think in my early thinking on this, and it's all amateurish because I'm not an academic writer, but my early thinking on this was quite focused on the sentience of the sentient beings. Yeah, and I still think that's quite a central thing in in a way because you know my sentience is that ultimately everything I experience and it's good or bad or something in between. And that is very central to my moral view, but I don't think it's the only thing that matters about me as a sentient being. And in a way with the way I framed it as compassion for sentient beings, rather than caring about the sentience of the sentient being is that once you've identified a being identified a being is sentient and has their own perspective and things can go well or badly for them, you should think about what they value. And that might not just be their own experiences. That could be dignity. It could be their capabilities. It could be freedom and autonomy. It could be, you know, so again, there's a whole world of other ways of having an ethical concern for a being that aren't just about the momentary quality of their sentient experience. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I like that as another range of pluralism that frankly, these conversations have sort of opened my eyes up too. Yeah, it, it becomes very interesting then to think there's always this battle between being prescriptive and being so open-ended that then there's maybe not much that actually would be um, a requirement by that system. You know, how, how do you make that balance? That's quite challenging. And I, I think um, I'm really interested in post-humanist theories as well, but particularly the likes of Donna Haraway is super influential and she writes about killing as being a necessity to life it is it is just essential it, it happens it happens to all of us we tend to separate humans and the rest of the natural world out from each other um, humans being as this non-killable kind of being we die but we are not killable um, in a, a metaphorical or, or theoretical sense but everything else is and I think what her, her kind of baseline for thinking about these things is instead of you know delineating this moral circle where we start to describe more and more things as not killable sentient beings or however else um, various systems will describe it we actually recognize that humans are killable just as everything else is we recognize that that is just part of the fabric of life um, and you sort of work, work out your ethical position from there so that thinking about that just led me to think of you know, you, you come up with an ethical system and you sort of determine who's in and who's out, but then how do you determine the actions on the basis of that? And I'm sure you spent a lot of time thinking about this and that's that's quite another challenging question. 
Yeah, I agree. And I think one of the other things I've, I know you've written about is is almost shifting away from the idea of a moral circle. Um, so that was, you know, one of the things that brought me into this topic in the first place, the idea of a moral circle and it expanding. And it's in a way, it's a, I think it's a progressive idea and it's a positive idea and that it does show that we can extend our moral concern more and more broadly and more and more generously. And I think it helps to test people's intuitions about who should matter and why, and it broadens our understanding of the other. But it does have some issues built into it as well, because by definition, because it's a circle, guess who's in the middle? It's us and humans. You know, it implies that we're setting a boundary. It implies a sort of gradation of concern that gets lower and lower to the outside. So, yeah, so I've sort of backed away from using the term moral circle and thought more richly about, I mean, who knows if it's a circle at all? Why should we be in the center? You know, it's much more about, you know, moral status and the extent of our compassion and who warrants being considered another and thinking of that generously. But so I've softened that through these conversations as well. But one one difficulty and concern I have, um, and I, I think it comes through maybe some of Haraway's thinking in post-humanism and post-modernism, but also the sort of descriptive approach to ethics earlier on. And it, it's a theme that I see in quite a lot of ecocentrism and environmental ethics as well. And I discussed this with Josh in, back in episode 20, is that the, the combination of those themes, which I think are positively motivated they're about decentering the human and they're about uh, epistemic humility and open-mindedness and they're about um maybe a sort of respect for nature and how things are without human intervention can lead some people into a mode of thinking which and this is an unfair caricature but i'm going to do it anyway which is something along the lines of we are all interconnected we live in a rich network of interdependent ecosystems which we should be humble and should not purport to understand. And we should be very cautious about intervening with. Us humans are part of those ecosystems uh, and we should play our part in those ecosystems in a humble way. And as part of those ecosystems developing and operating and doing what they want to do, life consumes life and there is a trophic chain and there's a hierarchy of being. And so I'm going to go and have my beef burger and a milkshake because, you know, and and I'm I'm sort of taking the piss a bit, right? But that is part of the a way of thinking that leads people away from a genuine compassion from the victims of not just human intervention, but the victims in nature, because nature is red and tooth and claw too, right? I mean, free-ranging wild animals don't always live the happiest lives, and there is enormous suffering and death there too and i do see those things as intrinsically negative outcomes because they're bad from the perspective of the individual being that is starving or being eaten alive or whatever it might be so again i'm rambling too much but what what do you think about that worry that again this sort of descriptive stance and this humility about humans can be used to you know allow us to just carry on doing what we're doing yeah, it can certainly be weaponized, right? That's always the danger, uh, as can any ethical system. Yeah, uh, and you're, you've you've characterized the risk of this system very well. Uh, it can lead us full circle back to, well, I'll just do what I'm doing. Then it doesn't really matter. It's fine. But <laughs> yeah, who 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 is who can judge me? Right. Right. Yeah. Um. But I, I think, so I've had that thought too, and I I kind of 
entered into my my early work with Haraway and post-humanism with a healthy dose of skepticism. And I think I was coming into it as a bold ethical vegan thinking no separation like exclusion that is the way that's what I believe in that's what I've been practicing for all these years but I started to really see the sense in it and I saw that actually this could go in completely the opposite direction so rather than leading us back to our status quo eating meat saying none of it matters because we're all interrelated we're all just animals do whatever we want it can lead us in the opposite direction where where we're at at the moment, questioning whether eating animals in the way we are is the right thing to do, which I think for most of us who think deeply about that issue, we realize it's not. That becomes not the end of the discussion, but the start of one. So that is almost a moral baseline. And then we say, okay, what next? We, as as Haraway says, and is, is always quoted as saying, we stay with the trouble. We we sit with the issue and, and we we live with it and in many different ways. She, she writes about this, but that's what I found to be really, really interesting. And I, I, the counter argument I see there for ethical positions that use a, a moral circle with a firm boundary that we have drawn is that that can enact its own kind of violence and its own kind of complicity and that we feel really comfortable that, well, okay, we figured out the answer. We know what we're doing. I don't have to think about this anymore. Yeah. Um, there's no, yeah. Right. There's no further step I need to take. Because we know how flawed our science is. We know that animal welfare science is evolving. So, of course, we can use some a moral circle with a precautionary kind of principle taken from environmental law, where we say, in cases where we're not sure, we'll, we'll go with that doubt and we'll pull in the species that we're just not quite sure about yet. I guess in a very maybe simplistic and logical way, my resistance to systems that use a, a firm, firmly drawn moral circle is that if we just look at the evidence and we look over time at the sheer scale of violence that those moral circles have enacted from slavery to um, the oppression of women in society to legislation that was um, enacted not or enforced not too long ago in the UK that made the practice of homosexual sex illegal and punishable by the death penalty. Yeah, All of these things are justifiable by ethical systems that use harsh bordered moral circle and so i just see this flaw in in the thinking and the way in which scholars are writing now that say all right i understand we did it wrong in the past but we've really got it now we've yeah, this time it. this time <laughs> and i just think there's there's just maybe a bit of a lack of humility in that thinking that we really have got the right answer so what's interesting is i think the practices that result from these different perspectives are often quite similar you know we're talking about ethical veganism about uh, living a, a sustainable and a, a conscious life and a, a peaceful life and whatever else. But I think that the core of it for me is that we we kind of keep sitting with these issues and thinking about what else might need to be done. You know, how can I act as responsibly as possible with all of the uncertainty that is inevitably out there? And those sorts of theories hold that at its core. And I, I tend to find that to be quite important. Yeah, thank you. And And I like the idea of Haraway is talking about tr troubling things. One because it um, avoids this, uh, avoids us slipping into a dogma. Right? We think we've, we think we're done. We think we've answered it, and we can stop. Right? That troubling is always that unsort of a sense of doubt and uncertainty that really I think is at the heart of a, any good naturalistic worldviews. You're always looking for new evidence and new ideas, and always challenging yourself. And that idea of troubling implies there is a problem, which does imply that there is some form of 
ethical judgment about bad stuff that's going on, right? So again, this isn't a completely descriptive, stand back, neutral, nothing matters point of view, right? It's not a relativism that turns into a abject nihilism, right? It's deeply engaged and concerned, and there is a sense of wanting to wanting to make things better or less bad, at least. The comment about the boundary, again, is another thing I hear a lot. And again, I, might, I think my th thinking on this is adapted over time because clearly sentientism is saying, look, we should have compassion for all sentient beings. And many people will lay that challenge and say, look, um, that sounds like you're putting a, a really hard boundary there. Who's to say that's right? And indeed, I think the first time the word sentientism was coined was actually by people criticizing it from an ecocentrist point of view. So people like John Rodman, who were saying, look, you know what Ros Godlovich and Singer and, Re and Richard Ryder and Tom Regan and those others are doing is another potentially another form of discrimination against the non-sentient stuff. Right? Yeah. yeah. So maybe there's a problem here. Um, and I guess I had two responses to that. And again, I think my thinking about this has softened and shifted over time through these conversations. One is to make it very, to be very careful that saying all sentience matters and all sentient beings matters doesn't mean we know who those sentient beings are right and because of our naturalistic commitment to using evidence and reason we should use that to prudently work out where sentience might be and how far it might extend so in that sense even sentience isn't a hard boundary at all because who knows right we we might discover more things about plants and fungi or you know the very simplest animals that we didn't maybe didn't think were sentient or it could go beyond, right? And I've interviewed some panpsychists who would, um, you know, take consciousness even more radically further than that. So on the one hand, even focusing on sentience isn't a hard boundary at all. It's something that should move and adapt and be troubled. And I guess it's part of the reason I focus on it, we touched on this before, is because I almost see it as a, a sort of reverse definition of who we might consider another. So rather than it being... Uh, you know, a characteristic that we might scientifically evaluate and then we go tick, you know, this being is sentient and this being isn't. It's, I think, another way into it that might fit your way of thinking better is to just consider all entities as others, in a sense, genuinely try and understand what their perspective might be and what their needs and what their experiences and what their values might be, and then act with consideration for those. And arguably, you could take that approach with a pig in a factory farm a plant in a forest or a rock. You could say, well, they are all others. We might have consideration for them all. Now let's take their perspectives and act with that in mind. Now, to my mind, that leads us back to sentience because I think the pig does have interests and needs and experiences. And I don't think the plant or the rock do. So we can consider them. But then when we consider them, I don't think we need to, you know, I don't need to worry about kicking the rock because the rock doesn't care about being kicked, whereas the pig does. So in a way, that's like a reversing back into what I think of as the classification of sentient being rather than seeing it as a sort of scientific category that we can evaluate independently. Um, but I guess the other thing is, is, is to be open-minded about going further. You know, I'm much more worried about excluding obviously sentient beings than I am about people wanting to include, you know, potentially non-sentient entities or ecosystems or other things. And that's my frustration is that many of the people who talk about taking a biocentric or an ecocentric view don't seem to grant serious moral consideration to most of the very obviously sentient beings. And I, I sort of don't mind if you want to take an ecocentric view, but there has to be something distinctive about having the capacity to suffer and having a will to live and having an interest in, 
existing that's seriously got to count for something over and above in sentient stuff but anyway that turned into a lecture and i should have been asking you a question no it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's thought-provoking yeah I, I think that makes a lot of sense i think that speaks to the way i was saying any ethical position can be weaponized in a way by people who want to be lazy or continue with the status quo or whatever else um, and that's good because it gives us a chance to kind of reflect on our theories and their gaps and how they could be employed. So um, it's it's always interesting. But I think I find Vicentian's question really interesting because I think the the more critical edge of some of the, the reading that I've that I've done over the years has talked about approaches to animal ethics in particular that rely on features of uh, human beings that are also evidenced in animal and using that as the basis for extending moral consideration to animals. And I think clearly there are increasingly uh, groups of people who are recognizing there is something problematic about that, that in that sense of the circle that you mentioned, we're very much placing ourselves at the center. And, you know, if you are similar enough to us, with with some uh some reasonable differences then we'll think about you um and that's fine and you can be included in all of these systems i think in in the same way that we learned that the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way i think doing ethical thinking without human beings at the core of it is really important um because ethics I, I, they're about how to live a good life and how to get, live a good life is not just about human beings in our experience, obviously it's uh, given our, our place in all of this. So I, I think- um... And I think that's an absolutely valid challenge because that's a classic human thing to do. Right? We, we love to come up with some new system that conveniently puts ourselves at the center and then we default into a, you know, I'm gonna judge you based on how like me you are. And we know we know the horrors that leads to. Right? And, and that's partly why I'm really keen to make it very clear that by focusing on sentience, this isn't sentience isn't you know a human characteristic we're now assessing in others it's um something that should ultimately destroy and undermine anthropocentrism because sentience was around for hundreds of millions of years before the first humans even existed and even today we're a vanishingly tiny percentage of the sentient beings on the planet so i think it's a valid challenge and there's a danger because some people do weaponize it in that in that context but the genuine intent of having moral consideration for every sentient being i think should destroy anthropocentrism not not boost it but it's a valid challenge yeah well to to this point and that, that makes sense i wonder have you thought about whether that same argument could be made for things other features that were used to justify um including animals in our moral systems um communication for example we know animals communicate with each other in different ways that existed before before us it will continue after us could you not use that same logic to just kind of go back to some of those other features we talked about as well? Yeah, I think you, I think you could. Um, I, I guess the reason I zero back in on the capacity to be another and to value your yourself and your own experiences is almost a sort of reverse definition of what I think of moral, morality as being all about. In that, once we put aside a sort of divine command theory or nihilism or you know various other forms of morality if we've got a sort of broadly naturalistic grounded morality to me it seems to be centrally about whether and how we care about others and when i say how we care about others what i mean is i would imagine in it always imperfectly what it might be like to be you ian and what you value and what you care about and morality is my decision to care about that it's almost that simple um so so 
that's what sort of reverse engineers me into thinking about sentience as being any entity in the universe that has the capacity to have a perspective I might want to try and adopt and acknowledge and care about is sort of baked into the definition of how I think about morality. Now, of course, if you think about morality in a different way, you know, compliance with a deity or following some dogmatic rules, then, you know, it doesn't quite work. But if your morality in any sense is concerned with others and whether and how we care about them, it seems to lead me back to this idea of sentience as a as a label for that, even if not, it's a, even if not a characteristic or a, you know, or a property. But yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I, I guess this goes to, again, the point about weaponizing different theories to, to align with the status quo, you know, if, if you want to align with a sentientist theory and say, this means I don't have to go any further, that I just, you know, consider these things and no more, it's, it's kind of a lazy approach to it. So I, I can totally see how there's a lot more scope for it to be, for it to be more than it's a, it's a starting point. It seems yeah. like. Yeah. Thank you. One thing I did want to finish up on in this who matters part of the question is how did the rest of your journey thinking about non-human animals play out from that point of eight to nine years old? And you mentioned, you know, eventually going vegan and so on. What was that journey like for you, both psychologically and socially? Was that an easy journey or a difficult one? Because, because you know, whatever we've been talking about in terms of descriptive forms of ethics and uh, different variety of perspectives, it's clear that you have a certain emotional and intellectual stance for what you think is good or bad to do in the world that um, seems to centre that sort of identification with others and the compassion that's led you down this route. Yeah, well, I've, I've always thought very deeply about it, I guess, and 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 cared very deeply about it. And so I, I think from that young age, that being just one of the earliest memories I have, but I I grew up with and caring for animals. So I, I had that opportunity to see the ways in which they experience things, the ways we could relate to one another, all of the reasons amongst the many that there are for caring for them and, you know, caring for each other, whatever else. So, yeah, I, I, I had that that privilege, I guess, of getting to grow up with and around animals and also in areas of um, sort of as close as you can get to true wilderness in the UK, I suppose, being in very Scotland. It's a um, stunning part of the world. It's wonderful. Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm lucky to still be able to call that home and that's where I go back to. Um, so I, so I, I had that experience growing up and I think I knew from a very, from a very young age because of that, I didn't want to eat animals. It didn't make sense to me. It wasn't until I left home that I was able to to action that and take take those that autonomy over my own choices. But I did as soon as I could, um, and have kind of practiced that ever since, on and off, with some kind of health issues coming in the middle that complicated things a bit. I, th- I think everyone has their own kind of journey with that sort of stuff, but it, it continues to be really important to me that I don't see a way to seriously engage with the ethical thought that I do and to continue buying into the factory farming model and the, the way that animals are are treated in all other kinds of industries as well. So so that's kind of where I sit now. It's not it's certainly not always been easy. I I think that moment of kind of starting out on that journey of of animal ethics and veganism and whatever else, you do start with this it's so it's so common to have this um, 
eye-opening experience where you see the world in this vivid, awful color that you just did not see before. And you wonder, how is it that these good people around me don't see this as well? And I think, I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but I certainly started out thinking, this is the right way. Everyone has to see this. Why do people not see this? And it had that that dogmatic feel to it in the beginning. And you very quickly grow out to that. One, because you realize it doesn't work. Two, because you realize you're not very fun to be around when, when you are bothered by this. But three, it's just more nuanced and complex than that as well. Um, so I think I did that journey and I, I had always wanted to, in some way, use my use my career to improve these these issues in in some regard and I didn't know what that would look like um but at some point some way um along the way I realized that academia was an option for me and that it wasn't closed off to this very small subset of society that actually to whatever extent we have a meritocracy in the UK which is questionable but there was a chance and and so I went for it and I, I spent some time um, working as as an animal advocate in Brussels, doing policy work at the EU, realized I was not well suited to that kind of work, much better off kind of thinking about bigger picture ideas rather than the day-to-day -day policy. That led me to kind of education and research and writing, and, and that's where I am now. So it's, yeah, still the better part of my career, and I kind of intend it to be going forward. Yeah, wonderful. Um, in the context of everything we've discussed, how can we make a better future so it's another crazily big question but i guess some of the themes that i'm interested in exploring but you can go wherever you like is one how these different aspects of epistemology and culture relate to um the way we think about non-human animals and animal agriculture and i've been particularly fascinated recently with the quite insidious links between colonialism and animal agriculture uh, partly just because of the nature of some of the trolls that have been popping up on Twitter around me recently. But it's just led me into some fascinating thinking about the parallels and the links there about how we treat non-human animals and modes of human politics and thought and ethics. Yeah, so maybe we should start there because then, then I wanted to let you talk about the role of animal law and politics at various levels and how do you think those can be a force for good of changing things as we go forward. But I should stop asking compound questions. No, no, it's, it's all good. I mean, I, I think these kind of relate to each other anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think those, the, the questions of the, the interrelationship between the category of species and the category of race and how they've been used and employed um, for violence through colonialism and, you know, post-colonial legacies. Like, I, I think that's, that has to be core to the work that we do as animal advocates. I think there's no way around it because the practice of animal exploitation has been tied up with with racial exploitation um and I, I think so again my book being about global animal law from the margins it's about looking at these experiences and the good and the bad practices of talking about different societal oppressions and how they how they are mixed up with one another how they reinforce one another and to be clear there's <laughs> there are some very bad practices uh, amongst animal advocates and NGOs and charities of 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 using other social justice movements to forward their own gains in a very insensitive way, in a way that does not pay attention to the history of how 
different racialized groups have been animalized, um, how women have been animalized uh, as a way to kind of forward their oppression. Yeah. Well, so, so brutally collapsing differences and just drawing blunt analogies that aren't appropriate, those types of narratives or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a good kind of summary. So yeah. Blunt analogies, imagery, um, talking very plainly about, uh, you know, rhetoric of um, factory farming is the next Holocaust, for example, as, be, you know, we, we get what we get what these advocates are saying, we get what they're trying to do, but there is a much more sensitive conversation that needs to be had about the interrelationship of these different social injustices. And yeah. crucially, I always think that involves including those communities who are in, who are affected. And that, that is kind of one of the key things that I, I work on in my book and that I think is key to a better future for thinking about um, thinking about ethics and the non-human is, is just that, you know, who is doing this work? Who are we including? Who are we involving in the conversation? Particularly as in the, the legal space, we're moving towards talking about global and international laws. You know, if we're doing that, but still failing on any basic test of diversity and inclusion in terms of who is coming up with our normative frameworks, um, who is deciding what kind of language we're going to be proposing for an international treaty or anything else. If we're failing in those regards and we're not recognizing that we're failing, you know, we're continuing boldly ahead saying, this is our worldview of, of animals and the law, this is what we should be doing, this is something that can be easily bought into universally, but we're not we're not having those collaborative, co-generative discussions across communities. One, practically, it just won't work. And two, it's for two, it's the wrong way to go about it. And three, it'll be fragile progress. Um, yeah. Because often we're seeing advocacy campaigns that are, you know, and, and this is maybe slightly better now, but we still see examples of this. Um, advocacy campaigns that will target animal industrial practices in contexts other than our own, for example, or um, practices of religious minorities um, in isolation from other uh, other things that might be going on in the same uh, broader communities. Yeah. So I don't know. That was very wobbly. Um, but no, that's that's, <laughs> that's very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Because it's, it can feel like, on the one hand, around the animal agriculture topic, there's a there's a strong argument to say that really it's you know eurocentric somewhat western cultures that have driven certainly the industrial industrialization of animal agriculture and that often links to directly colonial practices in terms of land hunger and you know needing space and driving deforestation and you know um genocide of indigenous peoples that are in the way of needing to spread out so that's one theme but sometimes the reaction of the animal advocacy movement can adopt a very Eurocentric frame in response, in that the response is therefore shut down the factory farms, everyone go vegan, launch a bunch of plant-based meats, and the problem is finished, right? And and you can't take that dynamic or that diagnosis of the problem or the prescription of the solution into very different contexts, right? You can't walk into a fishing village in Kerala and just say everyone should go vegan because the fish are sentient, right? It just doesn't quite play out. So, but at the same time, while recognizing that diversity of contexts and histories and perspectives, I, I think it's still important to recognize where there are harms being done in those other aspects. And But it's about, is it about involving the right people and finding different ways of addressing that problem? Because 
I do sometimes see people wanting to ignore the problem. Right? If if another culture is themselves subject to oppression, then I don't even want to talk about the oppression that that group might be carrying out on others, human and non-human. And I think that's also a mistake. We have to find some way of being respectful and inclusive and engaging and sensitive, but without also abandoning you know, potential victims of various types, regardless of who's doing the oppression and the perpetration. But it's a tricky balance. I don't, I don't know what is the right approach. Do you have a, a sort of some guidance for how we collectively should go about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, honestly, I think core to my answer is that I I would not be in a place to say what the one right approach is. I don't think there yeah. is one. I can give my, yeah. my sense, but I I think. But that's part of the point, right? That that's the essence of the point. Yeah. Exactly, and to me, the most important thing is, if we're affording any kind of initiative, it is to encompass other communities. We do so in deep collaboration with those communities from the get-go, from yeah. from design to uh, conceptualization, implementation, all of it. That goes for, again, thinking about the international law context, that goes for designing model treaties that we might want to bring to the UN. It, it goes for advocacy campaigns to include animal welfare in the sustainable development goals um, at the UN, for example, that we collaborate broadly in that regard. But then again, there's the the danger of then just assuming the right model is to continue with all of our work in the way it is. So, let's, so, so you and I were talking the Global North context. Let's say we have an initiative in the Global North. If we just reach out across the globe and bring in all these communities, then that's fine, job done. <laughs> Not really, yeah. because yeah. just assuming we get to control that narrative. Yeah. We get to be um, creating the... Um, we just need to get them on board with our thing which is the right thing and then drive it through you know yeah. right and yeah. there's, a, there's a whole thing with diversity and inclusion which is or, and participation as well why should why should people be speaking to us why are we the people you know <laughs> yeah yeah I, I tend to see a lot of it as being about capacity building as well so so giving money and resources to people who have their own ideas about how to do it in their own context yeah um and i i, I crucially just allowing um allowing space for various approaches to flourish that work in different contexts, I guess. I just, I, I see that as being really important and I, I kind of advocate for that in any movement towards any kind of international law instrument as we build that in um, through a collaborative process. Thank you. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and any final thoughts about the role of the law itself? Because often the law is sort of where the rubber hits the road, assuming it's being enforced or uh, or followed, which is a big assumption in many situations. And and as you mentioned before, the law is not one thing, right? You can think about, you know, everything from local council planning regulations all the way up to ultimately the the UN. And there's a brain melting complexity of governance and political positions and so on in between. Um, and personally, I, I feel that strong intuitive draw to the problematic approach you were talking about earlier on, where you just say, look, and I've done this, right? I've, I had to go at rewriting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights. And I've had to go at reworking the Sustainable Development Goals as Sentientist Development Goals, right? And there's this tendency for me to like, right, I can just write this, I can put it on the website. Again, it's it's a sort of central approach. It's here it is, here's the answer, job done, right? But what? how do you think more realistically about the role of the law at all of those different governance levels? And and do you see positive prospects for us 
moving in better directions that both accommodate a more diverse range of views, but move towards you know a more compassionate place that spans the species boundary and even ecological boundaries. I guess in the simplest of terms, laws are a reflection of the people that it serves, the people that make it. So as our societies develop towards more compassionate approaches towards animals, we will eventually see the law move in that direction. It's just slow and it lags behind um, because that's the way the law works. It's rooted in the past and precedent and so on. So I think, of course, as views change, and I think they are changing and they continue to, I, I think we will see movement in that direction. It, it's just about the way in which we lock that in in legal instruments and how that's done. So I, I think as well for anyone interested in in the non-human and the law and, and how we improve the situation of whether it's sentient beings or whatever else, the law is kind of a necessary evil in that sense. You know, it's... <laughs> If we want to make change, we kind of have to employ the law, though we recognize it's not sufficient by itself. It's nowhere near sufficient by itself. Um, and it's also not the first thing that you go to. You start you start with education. You start with grassroots campaigns and working with communities to build an understanding to the point where the law can feasibly make that jump um, because the law is cautious and tentative and it doesn't tend to be... Um, it can be bold, but it tends to require that kind of broader movement behind it for this sort of fundamental change, at least. So I, yeah, I, I think we have to work with the law in, in some sense. Where and how we do that, I kind of take an approach, particularly when talking about um, the non-human animal, <laughs> that throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Because really, at this at this point, with the amount of ongoing suffering, we want to see any change we can, and we want to see it fast. My position on this has kind of changed over time, because I, I feel that it's really important to get it right, um, to not lock in any kind of normative system that will be either fragile, or that will impose more harm over time. But at the same time, I'd, I also see that we can lock something in and edit it as we go. So I'm kind of supportive in all, of all initiatives that are behind, you know, creating better lives for animals. And I see myself as being able to support them whilst also, you know, forwarding a particular normative vision, I guess, because I recognize it's my vision. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I think taking a genuinely global perspective is important in the law, too, because people will instinctively sort of turn to the EU or you know certain again global north countries and say look they're on the forefront of animal welfare legislation which while it often recognizes sentience normally is framed in practical terms about maybe we should torture these beings slightly less before we kill them to eat them rather than any genuine shift in moral consideration um whereas it, there are other instances in india and some south american countries for example where they're actually quite upfront about even granting personhood to non-human animals and 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 there's more legal momentum and critical thinking going on in those places than there are in the certainly in the EU and the US. So yeah, there's hope there. Again, the practical implication of that a long way away, but there's there's still some hope there. Yeah, I think this is also a tricky one because I think there's a a decolonial critique as well as a critique from third world approaches to international law that recognize and describe international law as a colonial device that was created to forward the ambitions of the colonizers, and that continues to exist sort of in that legacy. 
And so it's an incredibly problematic thing. Um, but as is law at all levels, it does problematic things. It's structured in problematic ways. Yeah. So I, I think there, there's a broad range of views within um, what's referred to as twelve scholarship, the third world approaches, um, between demolishing the whole system, not engaging with it at all because it's just too problematic, it can't be fixed, to transforming it from the inside. And um, there are all kinds of perspectives in this regard. And I, I think the trend that I keep seeing, particularly amongst animal law scholars, is just let's jump to the international level because it's more sweeping, quicker change, you know, one instant and we'll do something. And it just, it doesn't work like that. Um, but I think increasingly scholars who are writing about this and and advocates are recognizing that it's more complex than that. Um, so yeah, talking about proposals, draft treaties, draft declarations, whatever else, I think there's an assumption by many really well-intentioned and very intelligent people working on these issues that that's the work that needs to be done. But in a sense, we've kind of done this language drafting work over and over again. And what we really need to do is, is think about how this would actually work, build momentum behind it and think about the institutions of, of international law and whether a top-down approach that we seem to be going for is the right way or or how these different levels of sort of legal and political governance can speak to one another. So that's a much more complex question. It, it's one that global law meta theory kind of wrestles with in an interesting way and that I try to come to some conclusions about um, in, in the book that I've written, but it's, yeah, it's very challenging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, and I guess one of my thoughts about taking a post-humanist approach and a post-modernist approach, one risk I see sometimes is that by decentering humans and humanity, we also step away from the responsibility that should come with our power. And and it's very clear to me that, you know, your work and the work you're engaged in is absolutely doing the opposite of that, right? It's it's recognising the severity of the issues and, and recognising the responsibilities we have. So it's been absolutely inspiring to sort of understand your philosophical journey and um, the work you do today. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me. Is there anything else you'd like to add into the conversation? But also, how can people follow you by your book, uh, you know, track your future academic work? Yeah, um, thank you very much. This has been really, really interesting. And it's um, awesome to hear directly from you more about sentientism and how you view it and also how it's evolved over time. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, so I, I don't think I have anything substantive to, to wrap up with except maybe yeah maybe just to share but I, I find this question about how we make change how we use the law to make change and how we're increasingly thinking about that at the international law level as well as this thing called global law which is which is somewhat different I think that's really interesting and um, increasingly really important we're seeing more and more activists and scholars engaging with it but not always having the the right guidance um, in terms of what those systems look like, how they work in practice. And yeah, I I, I by no means am, am the expert on this, but I've done something to try and crack some of those nuts in, in the book that I've I've just published. So there might be something in that in the, the sort of the latter part of the book where I make some recommendations as to how we can try and engage with that in a, a bit of a more responsible and informed way, I suppose. Yeah, in terms of uh, how people can stay up to date with what I'm doing, um, the best place at the moment continues to be Twitter. So I'm just at Ian Offer on Twitter. Yeah, I'm still calling it Twitter. 
I refuse to. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> for the moment. Yeah. Um. So that the artist formerly known as Twitter, you can find me. Um, LinkedIn as well. I, I tend to post most of my updates there. So if anyone happens to be interested in the book or anything else I'm doing, you'll find it there. And I've I've got a few book launches coming up that um yeah, there, there'll be stuff about that online fairly soon, as well as hopefully as an outcome of this at some point, um a, a sort of public facing academic blog sort of thinking about and talking about all these ideas of diversifying and um, animal off from the margins and so on. That's that's on the cards, but that'll be some time yet. Wonderful. Yeah, I look forward to it. And in the meantime, people should go and buy Global Animal Law from the Margins available on Routledge. There's an ebook that is reasonably priced for the average human being. The hardback yeah. would recommend anyone buy it. <laughs> yeah. Um, hopefully, or, hopefully. or order it for your local library or... <laughs> Yes, that's yeah. it. Hopefully the publisher isn't listening, but academic hardbacks are very yeah. expensive. Yeah. <laughs> but thank you, Jamie. This has been super, super interesting. Yeah, I loved it. Thank you so much. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Please stay in touch. And thank you again for being a guest on Sentientism. Thank you. Cheers, Ian. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?